morning, Doxa Church. You can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, you can go on and head over to John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning, 1 John chapter 2. If you've got one of these guys in the back, which I had to just go and run and get, it's going to be on page 592 in the blue ESV in the back. Um, my name is Rudy. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm on staff here with Doxa Church. I get to work with our college students, and we actually have uh, our team that we sent overseas to Southeast Asia coming back this next week. They've been uh, in this country for seven weeks. Uh, This will be the end of it. So I just ask you, Doxa, to pray uh, for them as they're uh, really wrapping up their time there and, and returning Uh, The return from a trip like this can sometimes be one of the most difficult parts of it. So I would just ask that you pray for them, especially in that area. Uh, We're going to jump right into the text today. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. If the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So let's get in the text, see what we got. Chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. Children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he that denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. That's pretty clear, right? I think we're good. We can just sum it up and pray and just go, for, right? Okay. We can, we can just be honest, guys, when we come across a text that, that is like this, and just say, that, that feels a little bit different than what we've been reading so far in the book of 1 John. Feels like a little bit of a left turn from the letters of John, right? We've been talking about Grandpa John writing this letter to these house churches, reading a little more like a sermon than a letter, talking about their their fellowship in Christ, walking in the light, confessing sin, seeing Jesus as advocate and, and, and sacrifice for their sin, loving one another, their identity that they have, loving the Father and not the world, as Nate preached last week. And then it feels like kind of out of nowhere, Here's some of the terms that we get. The last hour, the antichrist, the antichrists, that these antichrists came out of you. The anointing, cool. Uh, And then it ends with this lovely little bit about how you don't really need teachers rendering this letter from John to these churches and frankly, me up here this morning seemingly unnecessary, okay? So that's where we're at in 1 John this morning. Um, While that may read uh, a touch different to us and out of place for us, I would actually argue that this is what the readers of this letter, across the different house churches that this letter would have cycled through, I would argue that this is actually what they've been waiting for. 
that as we have been working through 1 John, they would have been waiting for John to finally say this, to finally say something here. Think about it like this. Um, how many of you have not seen Avengers Endgame? That, that's okay. Grateful for you. Glad that you're here. Statue of limitations on spoilers has passed, guys. It's been three years, so I, I feel no shame for what I'm about to do. Um, so, so imagine for a moment that you're walking into Avengers Endgame, and it's the only Marvel movie that you've ever seen. Here's a couple of questions that might come up in just like the first five minutes. Who are these people? Uh, why do they care so much about these tiny, colorful stones? Uh, who is that purple guy with the shriveled arm? Why did Chris Hemsworth just go off on him? And then like, why is everyone still sad? Okay, that's the first five minutes. All right, like, like you, you look at that and you might walk out of the movie and say, wow, cool, interesting action flick, interesting like cultural commentary that like the, the, the God man was lazy and like the science man was the hero. There's maybe nothing there, I don't know. Um, but like it's really interesting like little, little bits like that you might walk away with. Whereas everyone else around you is freaking out because all the questions that they've had for so long have finally been answered. They've finally kind of all come together, but you've come into something 10 years in the making. No background, no context. The movie answered the questions that were being asked, but it's impossible for you to catch that if you don't have the context. And Grandpa John has been writing to this point that we just read as a means of building up to this portion of the text. This passage unpacks uh, why he's been writing this letter. Damage has been done to the church, Doxa. The people he's writing to are in intense pain, and John is coming right after it. The purpose of this passage, and really of this entire letter, is that John is writing to a people in pain so that they might know where their help comes from. Note takers, this is for you. Uh, if you want to sum it up in a sentence, John is writing to tell them that there is help in the pain of the last hour. There's help in the pain of the last hour. And to that, to that end, we're going to kind of ask and answer three questions coming right from that idea, right? What is the last hour? What is this pain? And what is the help? I'm going to let you know on the front end, the first two questions of this are going to feel like a pre-sermon, and then we're going to kind of get into the sermon of the last question. So hang on with me, because there's a little bit of work that we have to, to do. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. All right, let's do some work. Um, and as you, do, as, as you read this, as we do some work, I want you to remember that the leading word here is still children, which keeps in the forefront of our mind as we read this text the tone that John has, that everything that he is about to say, he says because he loves those that he is writing to. This is for their good, their flourishing, their discipleship, and it is for ours as well. So children, it is the last hour. Interesting term. What does that mean? Um, the last hour or the last age was used both generally and specifically. So generally, it was to demarcate the entirety of the span of time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. As they are in the last hour, so too are we. It's, it's intended to de demarcate this span of time between the resurrection and the return. But there was these specific moments, such as this one, where last hour hasn't come up yet, but John is using last hour to try to communicate 
communicate something specific to the people that he's writing to. So specifically, there were moments where this term would be used because there was something that was going on that made it feel like it was the last hour. There's something happening in the cultural moment of this church that made it evident that they were in this last time. And as John is writing to the churches, there's something happening that is making it feel like it is the last hour. Something that is indicative and reminding the men and women in these church that they really are in between this time of the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And the question is, what is it? <laughs> like, what's going on? Well, we got to do a little bit of work here. It's important to understand that John is speaking to people that he knew. So they have shared language. When he says last hour, they're hearing something very specific. But further, John would have actually learned what to expect in this time uh, when he was a disciple of Jesus Christ himself. When, when he was following Rabbi Teacher Jesus. There, there's a number of places where Jesus talks about the last hour. But one of the clearest and most encapsulating is in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. So let's just break this down for a moment. Verse 9 should be up on the screen. Um, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation in the last hour and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. All right. We can break down this teaching of Jesus into three simple marks of the last hour. And and there are these. uh, That there is persecution, tribulation, betrayal, and death that comes in this last hour. The entirety of this span of time, the the church, those who uh, profess to be a part of the family of Jesus Christ, uh, will experience persecution, tribulation, betrayal, death. Point two, false teaching and teachers will lead men and women to fall away to betray one another and to hate one another. That's verses 11 and 12. And the third mark is this, that endurance and proclamation of the gospel will occur in the last hour. That's verses 13 and 14. So in this span of time, these three things will happen, which demarcate three groups of people uh, among the, the church as it gathers. Some will be persecuted and die. I don't have really time to get into the global state of Christianity to illustrate to you that while we're sitting in a comfortable air-conditioned room, that is not the reality for the majority of people that call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Just putting it out there, um, it's difficult. I just, I'm very emotional about this. Um, it is really difficult sometimes to see people treat Christianity like a little spiritual bobble to put on the tree of their lives. And, and then I've got like friends that I've met in Istanbul who are from countries that I can't name because we're live streaming where there are pastors there and they wear the mark of acid that their family members threw on them because they decided to follow Jesus, okay? So, so like there, there is a broad spread this occurring in the global church. Some will be persecuted in died. Number two, some will deceive and be deceived. Maybe this occurs a little more in the West. And then uh, point three, some will endure and proclaim. So three marks, three groups of people that we see kind of in the context of the last hour. And in John's context here, he's seen all three of them. But at this moment in the text, he seems to be particularly writing about the last hour in relation to the second mark in the second group of people. False teaching and teachers who will deceive, some will be deceived, and they will fall away and betray and hate one another. That's what we're walking into as you get the letter of 1 John. 
So to set the context, kind of two points, two ideas. One, false teachers have been deceiving people in the house churches that John is writing to. And two, as a result, to quote Jesus, the love of many has grown cold. The love of many towards God and the love of many towards one another has grown cold. John actually has a very specific word to describe these false teachers, if you see it in verse 18. He says that you have seen that the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. All right, now we got to pull over for a moment. Because terms like the last hour and Antichrist start having us think, if we've got kind of a spiritual imagination, exclusively about the future exclusively about the end, the return of Jesus, etc. And in a sense, they should, but in another very real sense, they should not exclusively do that. And that's actually what John is doing some of the work of here. Listen to what G.K. Beale says about this idea from his commentary on Revelation. One of the great tragedies in the church in our day is how Revelation has been so narrowly and incorrectly interpreted with an obsessive focus on the future end time with the result that we have missed the fact that it contains many profound truths and encouragements concerning Christian life and discipleship today. So if you read the word antichrist and you thought, maybe today we're going to find out who it is. Like, that's not what's happening, okay? That's not what's going on. I would argue that's not even the point of this text. We're not going to waste time on that rabbit trail. Neither, frankly, should you. People write books about predictions outside of the scope of the text on this very thing, typically in a way that highlights their culture, their time period, and their personal importance, and do so to profit off of and feed into spiritual anxiety, which is, frankly, incredibly wicked. Because for the Christian, I've got good news. Jesus wins, and we get to live kind of in accord with that. If you're a Christian, you're his, so live accordingly with urgency and assurance, period. So let's kind of move on from this. This is the press of the text to pull this, not from something to put your mind into the future, but to put your mind into the present, specifically to this idea of the plurality of Antichrist. This is John's title for false teachers. He calls them Antichrists. It's a little bit strong, um, but do. So what is an Antichrist in John's wording here? It's someone who is Antichrist. It feels explanatory. These are false teachers being labeled by John as those who are teaching against Christ or attempting to replace Christ. And if you look at what this denial of Christ produces, you can do an autopsy of any false teaching and see that at the root of it, there is some version of these two results. Sin is excused and love is excused. And John has actually been setting up for that this entire letter. He has been teaching through his letter against what these false teachers were instructing within the context of these churches. Look at at what it says. When sin is excused, it harms our fellowship with God. That's all of chapter 1. Right, the first four verses where he's like, I want you to have this fellowship that we have with God. Because Jesus Christ has made a way for our sin to be forgiven. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one who's by his death and by his resurrection has made it so that we can actually have a relationship with God. We can have fellowship with God. He he writes, I want you to have that fellowship with us. So don't listen to those people who say that they have no sin. The truth is not in them. Rather, confess your sin for Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. This is what he's saying in 1 John chapter 1. He's trying to break down, hey, quit listening to the people that are telling you that you can excuse your sin. It's harming your fellowship with God. You can be forgiven of your sin, but don't excuse it. Bring it to him. Confess it to him. 
chapter 1. Chapter 2, we see this element of love being excused. And when love is excused, it harms our relationship with one another. That's what uh, Paul, I'm sorry, that's what John is writing here in, in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, a new command that I give to you. But it's actually an old command. It was in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but it's also in Matthew 22 where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You are not excused from loving one another. In fact, the following of Jesus means that you practice and turn your attention towards loving one another as you have been loved first by God. So remember who you are. That's what Nathan talked about last week. Remember who you are. Fathers, children, young men, young women, remember who you are because of what Christ has done. And don't love the world. Nothing will come of that. Love the Father. Because if you love the Father, you will turn around and love those who the Father loves. And yet, this is the anti-crystal work. They're excusing sin and excusing love. They're doing these things to dismantle the fellowship, the relationship between you and God and between you and others in these churches. This is what they were experiencing that made it feel like it was the last hour. They were deceiving, they were dismantling, and the result of it was that the love of many was growing cold. And this experience, as you might imagine, brought great pain. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and it might become plain that they were not of us. Just so we're all on the same page, John is saying that these false teachers did not simply come from the outside, but they had come from within these churches. They had risen up from within, deceived, done damage, and left. And as you might imagine, the result of this for John and the members of the church was great pain. And here we consider, we move from considering the last hour to considering our, our second question, which is what is the pain of the last hour? To quote Jesus, the pain of the last hour is seeing the love of many around you grow cold. Love for God, love for people. As I say some of these things that I'm about to say, you may, as I have, have faces come to mind. I want to share something with you that actually Sam uh, was, was, was sharing as, as he was praying for us. He was praying that people might have permission to experience pain, but also know that God is their help in their pain. So as I say these things about this pain, I want you to give yourself permission to feel this pain with also the hope of knowing that God is your help in this pain. As you hear these things, perhaps have people come to mind. They see the pain of many grow, or the love of many grow cold. This pain is experienced both in an external reality and an internal question for John and for the readers in the churches. The external reality of this pain is experienced as people who were in the house churches, who were friends, fathers, leaders, teachers in the connection group, in the close friend group, turned from Jesus and then actually turned back to begin to try to deceive people away from Jesus. And this pain is deeply personal. It is deeply personal for John. Remember, John was literally a friend of Jesus. 
right? We say that and we mean it because Jesus is a friend of sinners. John literally followed Jesus around for years. He was the beloved disciple, the author of the Gospel of John, 1 John, and Revelation, widely, broadly known as the same person, John the Apostle. Yes, he saw Jesus as the Messiah. He saw him as the Messiah, saw him as his teacher, saw him as the one to follow, saw him as Lord, saw him as Savior, but he knew Jesus as a friend, and now he's hearing people lie about his friend Jesus. He's hearing people tell mistruths about his friend Jesus, deceive people about his friend Jesus. How would you respond? Like, how would you feel if you heard someone saying things that were blatantly untrue about your friend? You would feel some sort of pain, some sort of emotion. Look, look I hope that I hope that when you read the Bible, that you read it in its historical context, in its narrative context, in its redemptive context. I hope that you read it through the lens of the gospel. But I hope that as often as possible, you read the Bible as often as you can in its emotional context. This is an incredibly emotional text. This is an incredibly painful thing for John to be writing. It's painful for John because he has seen people lie about his friend Jesus. Some people that he may himself even have led to Christ and disciples have turned and deceived. It's painful for John, but it's also painful for the people he is tenderly writing to as little children. It is painful. Imagine that you're hearing 1 John read, and the reader says, if someone has they have, says they have no sin, then the truth is not in them, and you immediately think of someone who just a few days ago or just a few weeks ago was looking at you and trying to convince you that your spirit is pure, but your flesh doesn't really matter, so you can do anything that you want in your body, and you can excuse your sin. Imagine you're hearing the words, Jesus is the advocate and atoning sacrifice, but not so long ago, someone was trying to convince you that you didn't need Jesus to do either of those two things. Someone that you had trusted and known for a long time turned around and changed their mind and began to try to deceive you. Imagine hearing whoever loves his brother is in the light and whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, but someone had told you that loving one another isn't necessary and that you're excused from that command to love. And eventually that person looks at you and puts you in a position of having to choose. And they look at you and they say, you either need to abandon what you know about Jesus and follow me or stay back and be wrong. Pain. In these churches, some people stayed and others chose to go. And what was left was this intense reality of pain. So please understand that John is not writing to a group of academics pontificating in their theological playground. He is writing to people who know the taste of their own tears because they have seen friends walk away from Jesus. He's writing with such gentleness and clarity, he says, little children, over and over and over again because he is a wounded healer. He too has experienced pain, but he also knows where his help comes from, so he's meeting people precisely where they are. So there is the external pain, the external reality of this pain. Uh, They look and they see people whose love has grown cold who are deceiving, but there is also another piece. There is the internal question that John is writing to address. The question on the minds of the readers that John has been building to and addressing, they have seen people go from disciple to deceiver, so how can they know that they won't follow the same path? This is the internal, insepid question that's going on in this text as John is writing to them. They're seeing people leave, and they're saying, what if that happens to us? I remember having to engage with this Several years ago, and really often since, um, 
a part of my God story is that the guy that uh, brought me to church and shared the gospel with me and shared a Bible with me and that we read the Bible together eventually left the church and started espousing things about Jesus that were untrue, hyperjudgmental, supremacist, and demeaning. A good friend of mine in Florida once asked me how that made me feel. He asked it gently. He asked it tenderly. He did not ask it uncouthly. The only word that I could use to describe that feeling at the time was disillusioning. I was so disillusioned. How could this guy that had taught me so much about Jesus walk away and would I do the same thing? I think that question is some of why John is so cyclical and repetitive in relation to who God is and the assurance that Christians have in Jesus Christ throughout this letter. Because while the pain of the internal question here is what if that happens to me and that can be disillusioning and is, it is unequivocally not the question that John is asking these men and these women in these churches. He is not calling their salvation into question. And because he knows that is a question that they are asking themselves, he refuses to ask it of them and rather is building their assurance in who Christ is, what he has done, and how we live in response. Again, you have to watch the prequels to know what's going on here. John has been addressing this in chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so you might too have fellowship with God among us. Chapter 1, verse 7. We have fellowship with one another. Chapter 2, verse 3. We have come to know him. Chapter 2, verse 10. For you who walks in the light, there's no cause for stumbling. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This is your identity. Your sin is forgiven. You know him who's from the beginning. You've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You're strong. The word of God abides in you. Chapter 2, verse 17. The world's passing away along with its desires, but those who follow the will of the Father will live forever. They abide forever. John has been building onto this, and he adds to it here in verse 20 when he says these two words, but you. John turns the tide of this text, not for us to question whether or not we are the next deceivers, the next who will leave, but to remind us of what is true of us because of who Christ is. John is turning the tide in the middle of the pain that is being experienced so that the readers and so that we might know where our help comes from in the pain of the last hour. And our pain may not be precisely the same, but I want to draw out a few things. First, if You've not experienced the pain of seeing someone near you grow cold or seeing them be deceived away from Jesus by false teaching or culture, etc. Um, it's very possible that at some point you will. So what will you do when that happens? How do you move towards them as Jude 1.22 says, with mercy? What is your help in choosing to enter into that pain? Well, John gives us some help here. Second, I'm just going to ask it. What do you do if your love starts to wane or grow cold? What if you start to be exposed to informed by false teaching? Something attempting to come against or to replace Christ. To convince you to excuse sin. To excuse love. Where do you go for help? This is why we have our third question. <laughs> what is our help in the pain of this last hour? Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. 
All right, again, another one of those sentences that is like, what the heck does that mean? Um, You've been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Well, first, who is the Holy One? Uh, To to move past this quickly, Jesus in the Gospel of John and in Revelation uh, is referred to as the Holy One by John. So this means that you've been anointed by Christ. Now this is amazing because the word Christ actually literally means anointed one. So what's being said is that you've been anointed by the anointed one. Take it a step further. The Antichrist, the anti-anointed ones are trying to deceive you, but you have been anointed by the anointed one. That sounds great. Again, what does that mean? Um, In the Old Testament, if you were a king, a priest, or a prophet, you were anointed with oil. Uh, An anointing is a mark that was intended to set you apart for a particular purpose. In the New Testament, we see Jesus described in Luke chapter 4 as the Holy Spirit came upon him and it has uh, anointed him. In Acts chapter 38, uh, being anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. So the anointed one, Jesus, anoints us. He marks us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us what he had, which is the Holy Spirit. We are marked by the Holy Spirit. A a few weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit. We, We summarized what the Spirit of God does in John 16, verse 7, that he will glorify me. He glorifies Jesus. He turns the attention and the spotlight of all things to Jesus. And that is crucial in the context of 1 John for them and, frankly, every single one of us as well, because there has always at every point in the history of the church been groups of people attempting to deceive Christians into excusing sin and excusing love. There have always been influences in the church and and in in the culture in every age by which harm is intended for our relationship with God and our relationship with others. To be honest with you, there have been many moments where Christians were absolutely deceived by these influences. There have also been moments when they were not. So how did Christians in the past resist? How did the hearers of 1 John resist? How do we resist? What is our help in the pain of the last hour? Our help is that Christ, the Holy One, marks us as his own by the Holy Spirit. We are anointed by Christ, marked by the Spirit. By the Spirit, Christ is our help in the pain of the last hour. Again, that sounds nice. We've brought it down. But if that's all that was to be said, it would seem, forgive me for this, unhelpful. So John unpacks it for his readers here. That in relation to their pain... There are three things that John indicates in the text that the Spirit of God uses to strengthen us so that we might know that we are Christ's as we follow after him. Three things. Number one, the Spirit of God strengthens truth to expose lies. Look at verse 21. I I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he that denies Jesus is the Christ? What is the Antichrist but he who denies the Father and the Son? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Remember, John is a disciple of Jesus. So as John is talking about the truth here, he is referencing it in a way that Jesus would have. He's referencing back to John chapter 16, verse 13, that the Spirit of God will lead you into all truth. Of John chapter 17, verse 17, uh, where Jesus prays for the disciples and says in this verse, sanctify, uh, progressively make them more like Jesus. Progressively make them more like you. Sanctify them, the disciples, the believers, in your truth. Your word is truth. 
The, the Spirit of God strengthens the truth of the Word of God within the followers of Jesus so that lies that we believe or might believe may be exposed. Now, this is not an invitation for you to wave your Bible around like Thor's hammer and try to crush other people around you. It is for you to look at you. Uh, James chapter 1 says the Scripture is like a mirror, that we are to look in it and actually see ourselves, that we would be exposed for our sake, us first, that the truth of God's Word would be illuminated by the Spirit of God to expose any lies that we might be believing. This happens as we read the Bible. It's the doctrine of illumination. We read Scripture, and the Spirit of God illuminates and exposes the lies that we are believing and helps us to grasp onto the truth of the Word of God so that we might be assured and sanctified, change and grow and become more like Christ through it and as we obey. A quick example of this. There's many more, <laughs> but a quick example of this. Um, about a year ago, in our transition from Pennsylvania to Iowa, I was reading through the Psalms, and I had a moment where this happened to me in a very dismantling way. I was reading Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And it was like my eyes were glued to the page in a way that I still struggle to describe. And I was convicted so kindly by the Spirit of God that I had not been making my Lord, the Lord my trust in that time and in that season. I'd been trusting in my ability. I'd put so much trust in what I was able to do that in those brief weeks of not knowing exactly what my role was going to be, exactly what my job was going to be, exactly what was going to happen next, that I had grown frustrated and angry. My pride was so wrapped up in what I was doing. My trust was wrapped up in me. I was going astray after a lie. I was so frustrated. I was so angry. I was so short with everyone that was around me. And it was with immense strength and gentleness that the Spirit of God exposed that lie through the Word of God. It was truth exposing a lie. Doxa, I, I hope you read your Bible. I hope you regularly have time in taking what Jesus said was God's truth, the word. It need not be a fancy practice, simple, short. If you miss one day, don't miss two. But what could God do in your life as the spirit and the scripture work in concert to form you, to shape you, to expose lies, to strengthen truth, to strengthen assurance, and to form you to be more like who Christ would be if he was you for the sake of those who are around you? What if... There are lies you're believing that the Spirit of God wants to expose through the Word of God and replace with truth so that the truth and the words of Jesus in John chapter 6 might make you free. The Spirit of God strengthens truth to expose lies. Number two, the Spirit of God strengthens intimacy to build resiliency. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The language of abiding really has marked us this year at Doxa, so I'm not going to belabor it. Again, John learned from Jesus this. In John chapter 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide, live in, remain with me. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. She it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't. And do nothing. 
We abide in, remain in, return to, make our home in what we have heard from the beginning, that God saves sinners. We who come to Jesus are saved from our sin and put into the family. We are grafted into the vine. We're invited by Jesus to abide with him, to hold on to the promise that he made to us as we are with him, which is eternal life. In this, the Spirit of God strengthens our intimacy with God so that our resiliency against pain and in pain might grow as well. I know of no better way to be resilient through the pain of the last hour than by being with Jesus. I have had to learn this over and over again. Yes, God does provide a variety of means by his common grace so that we might endure pain, but at the middle of it is this abiding work of being with Jesus through which the Spirit strengthens our intimacy with Christ and our resiliency in pain. The work of evangelism and church planting is a work that will have pain. And the Spirit of God draws us to abide with Jesus and grow in resiliency in that pain. The work of discipleship and leading connection groups is a work that will have pain. And the Spirit of God draws us to abide with Jesus and grow in resiliency in that pain. The work of justice and mercy, desiring to see the accomplished gospel applied for the sake of those who are around us, is a work that will have pain. And the Spirit of God draws us to abide with Jesus and grow in resiliency in that pain. Doxa, the Spirit of God strengthens your intimacy with Jesus as he draws you to abide with him so that you might grow in your resiliency and endure the difficulty and pain of life in this last hour, in this period of time. I hope that you hold space and make time to just abide with Jesus, to be with Jesus, to pray, to remember that he's with you, to keep him on the forefront of your mind, that apart from him you can do nothing, and that as he is with you, you can not only grow resilient, but be strengthened for the work at hand in front of you in the pain that you are experiencing. The Spirit of God strengthens intimacy to build resiliency. Third and finally, the Spirit of God strengthens teaching so that we might deny deception. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing, remember there it is, that word, that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and it is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is an interesting bit of the text that we need to understand, because the first time I read it a few years ago, I was super confused, but I'm now actually very grateful for it. So first, understand, Paul is doubling down. He's not been writing to condemn them, but to strengthen them. His warnings, verse 26, are against those who are trying to deceive. But the anointing, the Spirit of God, abides in us. And catch this, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Okay, a couple of things that would have been really clear to the original readers that we might miss. First, this word you is plural. I'm from Florida, the South, which is the origin of the most versatile second-person plural word I've ever come across, which is y'all. Okay, so this is the translation in, in, uh, of the second-person plural. He is functionally saying that y'all have no need that anyone should teach y'all. Okay, he is referencing the community doesn't need someone to come in teach them, which really still doesn't quite scratch the itch of the text, which is why we have to consider uh, two more things. First, this teaching is not to say that the members of the church don't need to learn about things externally. It's not an indictment against learning. It's a note on who should be given authoritative, formative teaching privilege within the context of the local church, which brings us to the second bit, verse 26. He is writing about those who are intending to deceive. So John is saying that the community of the church does not need someone to formatively, authoritatively
actively teach them, who has the express intention of deceiving them. Okay? This is the last sentence that really wraps the whole section up. That the Spirit teaches you the truth, illuminates the word, exposing lies. You all, check this, in community are to be influential on one another so that if someone comes in who is expressly attempting to deceive you about Jesus, to deny Jesus, to excuse sin, to excuse love, then you can, as a connection group, as a local church, collectively and in plurality, remember and teach one another what you are remaining and remembering about Jesus so that someone who is intending to deceive does not become a formative, authoritative teacher, but ultimately as you are taught by the Spirit, by each other in community, you will find that what you need is witness, is abiding, is returning to a relationship with Jesus, not to deny him, not to excuse sin, not to excuse love. So if someone comes in and tries to deceive, there's the collective weight of the context of a gospel community by which we strengthen one another so deception is not just exposed, but it is denied. Historically, people have gathered around the scripture uh, to form statements uh, that actually were really formative and helpful in this practice called creeds, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Laozen Statement of Faith, Doxa, we have a statement of faith. It's actually a great reason, if you've not signed up for it, to come to Foundations a piece of what we do, how we apply the text in community so that we might grow statements that we kind of gather around, but also so that we might know how to deny if or when deceptive teaching or instruction comes in externally or rises up internally. The Spirit of God, through the community of the church, strengthens teaching so that deception might be denied. (sighs) Christian, you have been anointed, marked by Christ. He's aware of the pain that you experience, and he has given you his spirit to strengthen truth and expose lies, to strengthen intimacy, to build resiliency, and to strengthen teaching so that you might deny deception, so that we might deny deception. He is our help in the pain of this last hour. Um, just to close, that's my time, I'm just going to close. Um, There's this piece at the beginning of the book of Revelation where John, same John, has this vision of Jesus. And he he says this really interesting thing. He says, I see Jesus uh, among the lampstands. Now, we learn later the lampstands are indicative of the churches. It's representative of the collective churches, uh, the global church, the churches of the world. And he sees Jesus Christ among those churches. It's this picture that John gives us for us to understand that Jesus is not distant or removed or external or away from, but he is among and with his churches. He is not distant, but he is aware of the happenings within his church. In the same way that he was aware of the happenings within these house churches in 1 John, he is aware of the happenings within our church here in Madison, Wisconsin. He's aware of what's going on in the church. He's aware of the people who are a part of them. He knows each and every single person in them precisely where they are at. He is not passive, but neither is he surprised by any of these portions in any of these places. It is no surprise to Jesus that there are those who would attempt to deceive people away from him. He said that would happen. And there is also opportunity given for anyone who does this to repent of their sin and come to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is no surprise to Jesus that there are those who would turn away from him and be deceived. He said that would happen. There is also an invitation to any who find themselves exposed to or influenced by such deception to come home to Jesus, to deny their denial and return to Christ. 
There is also no surprise to Jesus that Christians experience pain because our Christ experienced pain. He is familiar with pain. He knew pain when he got on the cross, when the crown of thorns was put in his head and nails were put through his hands and feet and he suffocated on his own blood. He knew pain in those moments. He knew the pain of betrayal and denial. He knew the pain of the just punishment of the wrath of God for our sins. He knew pain. He knows that pain and he knows what we need in our moments of pain and he is our help. He marks us as our own, and he helps us by his spirit. So if you're here, this be so clear, and you're not a Christian, I need you to know he is not your help, but he could be. You can come home to Jesus today. You can repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus as Lord, Savior, and friend, and you can come home to him and know that he is your help and the pain that you're experiencing Right now, if you're here and you are a Christian, I have a few ways that you might need to respond to this text. First, you need to bring your pain to God because he can actually handle it. It's not a denial of your pain. It's bringing it to him and trusting him in it. Two, you may need to examine yourself. Where are you giving permission in your own life to yourself to excuse sin or love? Where does that need to be rooted out? Three, Where do you need the Spirit of God to strengthen you? Is it in truth to expose lies? Is it in intimacy to build resiliency? Is it in teaching and the community of teaching to deny deception? Where is it that you need his help this morning? I'm just going to ask us to to pray. I'm going to give you just a moment in the quiet for you to respond and you to ask. Remember, Jesus is among the churches. He knows what we need. He's present with us. So just, just ask. We'll give you a moment to just close your eyes for a moment of focus and concentration and to pray. Ask for what you need. And then I'll lead us in a time of prayer. Jesus, you taught us, your word teaches us to be still and know God, know that he's here, know that he is. So God, we we know that you're here and we confess that we need help. So God, regardless of where we fall this morning, you know the help that we need to repent, to come home, to ask for strength, whatever it is, you know the help that we need. So Jesus, teach us to look to you in our pain and to know, help us to believe and to know that you are our help. It's in your name.